If you look at the studies at looking at max fat oxidation, the variability is massive. Some people maximize their fat oxidation at 60% of the heart rate max, other people at 80. So you've got this huge zone where you could be maximizing fat oxidation. So you don't really know what to stick to. If you're not doing much volume over the week, I would say push towards higher intensities. If you're doing huge volumes, definitely lean on the zone too. Less fatigue. It's mentally, it's so much easier to show up for a cardio workout when you know it's just going to be a nice, easy zone too. People really need to customize and personalize their, their diet, perhaps more so than I appreciate it. As long as you're still ticking those big boxes off, so it's low saturated fat, it's high fiber, you're getting a good amount of plant protein and you're not eating a lot of ultra processed foods there's room to modify things and see what leaves you feeling best and what bi what works best for your biomarkers hey friends great to be here with you again in today's conversation we welcome back exercise physiologist and my good friend drew harrisburg we chat about zone 2 training social media versus evidence-based protocols for high intensity cardio and proving again that neither of us take ourselves or life too seriously. There's a bounty of laughs along the way. As mentioned within this episode, the calculations that we discuss for determining your maximum heart rate and training zones are in the show notes, along with Drew's recommended three day per week cardio training split for the person that's aiming to improve their cardiorespiratory fitness and lower their risk of chronic disease to live better for longer. With that, please do enjoy. This is me and exercise physiologist, Drew Harrisburg. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones. And I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a longtime listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high fiber, plant rich diet for good long term health. And while I certainly believe in a food first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus 
contains a direct source of DHA and EPA omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Let's start again, bro. Start again. Okay. Let's start again. We're on. <laughs> you can't make me laugh. Okay, this is Dude. a problem. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> this is it. Dude, we, if we start laughing now at the beginning, this we're not going to get through this. No, because I'm thinking about our webinar. <laughs> <laughs> this is actually a problem. <clears throat> that study might come up. Will it? Okay, just don't name him. I can say it properly. <clears throat> okay, what's oh. the name? <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's go. This is gonna be the worst podcast ever. <laughs> oh, okay. I need some coffee. You know what we're gonna, how we're gonna start this? Let's <clears throat> do <laughs> some breath work. Okay, let's let's relax. Yeah. <sighs> we have about how many minutes? Five minutes in. <laughs> okay. Anyway, we're back, mate. Uh, I'm happy to be back here mate. in person in the studio. It's been. <laughs> Shit. Shit. <laughs> Let it out. I can't breathe. <coughs> it's a combination of the sage and the name. Oh no, that's a problem. Don't you can't think about it. I can't, I can't get it out of my head. It's like Absolutely. an obsessive compulsive disorder. So I was doing a workout this morning at this this endurance event. This guy invited me. And um, he's a friend who I, who I met at golf. And he said he listened to the webinar or the clip on Instagram. He said he was on the floor <laughs> laughing. Like it was just, he couldn't stop laughing. And I still watch that sometimes. If I just need to pick me up, I'll just jump on my own page and just watch that clip. You know, the only thing that I regret about that is not laughing harder. I just, I, I held it together. Yes. Just. Yeah. I, I don't know how you did. I have no I idea gone. how I did, but I've watched it over yeah. and over in replay, yeah. and there's no way I can hold it together. Oh, I'm in mate. hysterics every time. Same. but it, And it was an absolute accident. I've had people ask I know, me. I know. Com- completely unscripted, unplanned, yeah. And organic. you got the name wrong. That's the funniest part. <laughs> it was close. It was very close. I think you were, you, you'd heard of Kokonakis, the tennis player. <laughs> I reckon that's what, it just threw you, it threw you off a little bit. Anyway, um, Kokonos. Kokonos. is the name of the author. Yeah. And for those that have no idea what we're talking about, <clears throat> yeah, fill them in. There was a silly uh, mispronunciation of Kokonos, uh, which occurred during a webinar. Okay, but don't say it because I'll start laughing. <laughs> no, this is this is uh, a PG <clears throat> program. Is that you or me? I think that was you. This is a PG program. The webinar was all adults, yeah. and there might be. Now, this is a community, family-friendly show. It is. There's probably kids listening and uh, 
in respect to those families listening, we yeah, won't save the joke. We, we won't say exactly what happened, but it was it was pretty funny. It was a great laugh. If you want to see the clip, go to my Instagram. You'll you'll find it there. Do we need a little bit more sage? No, please stop. <clears throat> I can't breathe already, dude. Please yeah, stop. We just have to oh, cleanse. You're a madman. I did this workout this morning. My lungs are destroyed. I've got like exercise induced asthma, and now he's lighting. Can someone tell sage us in if the room. sage <clears throat> smoke is unhealthy? Oh my god! I think it probably is. It can't be good. But we haven't been in this <clears throat> recording studio for what six months. I actually did the oh, webinar did. from here. Yeah, oh, yeah, you were with, here. Right, yeah, that's right. I've been in here. Well, we haven't recorded together since we were with Alan. Yeah, mate, I haven't seen you for a long time. You've no, been traveling been the traveling. world. You've been yeah. recording <laughs> podcasts all over the place. Lots of good episodes. Do you want to hear a joke? <clears throat> sure, I love a traveling. joke. Just don't make me laugh too much because I'm coughing. I don't want to cough this whole podcast. Okay, so there was <clears> a, <throat> a photon traveling through the airport. Oh, it's <laughs> a bad idea. It's a bad idea. You brought up travel. <laughs> okay, okay. So this photon was traveling th- through the airport and you know when you go <clears> through <throat> the airport, you get to security. And in America, at least, there's like a T- TSA kind of person working there mm-hmm. and this guy at security says to the photon hey did you bring any luggage do you have any bags and he, he looks back at him and he says no i'm traveling light oh my, <laughs> oh my god it's a clever play on words i like it i'm glad it wasn't that funny because i would be coughing my lungs it's out. a dad joke it's a great dad joke yeah it's a, it's a very um simon hill joke mm-hmm. as well Got to have a bit of intellect in there. Yeah. So you've um, trained today? Mate, did this amazing like group workout endurance challenge, which I don't really ever do these sorts of things. Think about like a CrossFit box vibe, like energy, but mm. it wasn't CrossFit. It was just a general a gym. But uh, <clears throat> if people want to hear about the workout, I love to share it. It was teams of three and it was a, it was a race a competition. You have to run two kilometers as a team. It's like a relay. So you run a 500 meter loop, you tag your teammate in. Then you do two kilometers on the ski erg, four kilometers on the assault bike, and then you run again 2K. It was just like all of these different modalities, and then you finish with a 5K row. But <clears throat> because I went out so hard, it was like interval training, mm. my lungs are just destroyed. And I used to get asthma as a kid, and I haven't felt this level of asthma as an adult for a long time, which makes me think I just don't push to those intensities in my mm-hmm. general training anymore. You know, like it was 60, like 60 to 70 minutes of just nonstop. So I'm just, that's why. What did your whoop show at the end of that? It was interesting data, actually. It felt extremely hard. And actually, this is very topical. We'll get into this later because I brought in a study, which was just coincidentally to do with this. Um, My max heart rate was not that high during the workout because the intervals were pretty short and it was three people, right? Like a relay. So like I'll ski as hard as I can for as long as I want. And then when I feel like I'm ready to tag the next person in, they go in and you just keep going. So it's, it's a, <clears throat> so the five kilometers like rowing was combined. Yeah, you just do your part for the team. Mm-hmm. How far can you go? How quickly can you do it? You want to do a 20-second sprint, do that. If you want to do a minute, do that. There was no rules. You just strategize however you want. But you know, your, the work-to-rest ratio is pretty interesting because you do your set and then two people do theirs and then it comes back to you. Mm-hmm. So you're resting quite a bit. But it feels extremely hard during the set. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, yeah, the data was like, man, I was mostly in zone three. I touched on zone two for about 17, uh, sorry, zone four for 17% of it. I barely hit zone five. 
And there was quite a bit in zone two where, when I was mm. resting and recovering between sets when I wasn't doing my, my set. Right. Which was a question <clears throat> that I actually asked Inigo. Right. Because I wanted to know when <clears throat> can I count the, say, 40 minutes or whatever during my resistance training session that normally is zone two? Yes. And he said, probably not. Probably not. And, and now I'm thinking about it. So when I wasn't rowing, right, let's say I did an all-out bout of 500 meters – while I'm resting, I'm in zone two for my rest. My heart rate naturally calms down into zone two. But I'm not – there's no work being done. No. There's no power output. It's mm. purely an, an active rest state. Yeah, so it's just your heart rate is the same in terms of beats per minute as would occur during zone two. Right. But in one context, you're resting. Right. The other, you're on a bike or jogging or whatever. Right. So the energy expenditure and what's happening in the cell yes. is likely very different. Exactly. Like if you stepped out onto the street and nearly get hit by a car, adrenaline will kick in, your heart rate will go up to 130. It's not the equivalent of running on a treadmill. Right, or sitting in the sauna. Or sitting in a sauna and your heart rate elevates. It doesn't equate to cycling or something, mm -hmm. right? Just because your heart rate is a certain number doesn't mean you're burning more calories than, than another mm -hmm. state. Which I think that was one of the questions actually, which we just answered off the bat mm -hmm. accidentally. Yeah. <clears throat> did you train this today? What did you do? I did zone two this morning. Yeah. 60 minutes. Just cycling? Cycling, stationary bike, <clears throat> talk test. I do use heart rate as well. So you, which, you're looking at your whoop on your phone? I'm using heart rate from the whoop, but right. the target heart rate, I actually use use the um, heart rate reserve calculation the carbonin yeah. formula yeah and then one of the more specific max heart rate calculations right that's i do the exact same right yeah um, it's the ones that we've discussed we can put yeah. that that this maybe into the show notes for people yeah um, but in speaking with inigo about that and i think it'll be good for us just to kind of go back over the key takeaways oh, from from that episode, from that episode because <clears throat> it was incredibly informative and detailed yeah <clears throat> great but there might be some people that i just left thinking just tell me what to do mm. on a weekly basis mm. and we did go over that but it was like 90 minutes in and there was a lot of deep science around it so yeah maybe we can kind of summarize some of those things but for me personally i i, I mean I, i've also done lactate testing right. so i've done lactate testing i've had a vo2 max test which gives you a lactate threshold and yeah. your different zones i've used the calculations that you and i have spoken about mm. and they lined up really well with the vo2 max i'm so happy to hear that because sometimes you, ne you never know yeah if an individual's mm. you know theoretical calculation is going to actually match the practical lab setting and for you it did which so for awesome. me it did but i think that's inigo's point yes is that what he sees in the lab mm. is that it doesn't always match so right. he'll so you can use these sort of online calculators to work out your zone two and then when he's looking at people in the lab setting yeah that isn't actually their zone two yeah uh, which makes sense right right it, it, i mean it's it's a, literally like a calculation on paper mm. it doesn't know the individual even though the method that we use is more individualized because it takes into account your resting heart rate that's why i love that like because mm. imagine we both had the exact same max heart rate not just theoretically using the calculation mm. but we both had the exact same max heart rate as as measured in a vo2 max mm. test right but my resting heart rate is 38 and yours is 68, let's just say. Mm -hmm. Your usable beats to get from 68 to max is far less than mine. I've got more usable beats, right? So the relative intensities will be a little bit different, even if we try to follow the, the zone two guidelines, which is mm -hmm. 
a very narrow bracket. 60, 60 to 70%. Oh, narrow. max heart rate. That's like the the kind of crude way of calculating it. Yeah. And and if you look at the studies at looking at max fat oxidation, the variability is massive. Some people maximize their fat oxidation at 60% of the heart rate max, other people at 80. So you've got this huge zone where you could be maximizing fat oxidation. So you don't really know what to stick to. That's why in in my guidelines in my book that I just put out, the training program, I actually, <clears throat> I don't call it zone two. I call it moderate intensity continuous training. And my bracket is slightly larger, 60 to 75. Just in case there's those outliers that need to push beyond 70% to still be in zone mm. two. Because you still want to be working hard. Like you asked a great great question to Inigo. Is it Inigo? Inigo. Inigo. Inigo um, San Milan. Inigo. So you asked whether you want to be aiming at the lower end of the target range or the higher end of the target range, right? Should be sitting on like 69, 70% of your heart rate max or is it equivocal to be at 60 or 61%? And I think he did say like try to sit at that higher end, mm. right? Which is, <clears throat> which brings into the next point. If you're flirting with that line. It's very easy to go over it and particularly as the duration of the session goes on. So, if, so I know all the time I sit on a bike and I'm sort of putting out a, a given amount of watts. I'll be sitting in zone two in the upper end of it, but 40, 50 minutes in, I'll start to drift above it. So I have to drop the intensity of my pedaling in order to, to come back to that zone. I'm still not clear on something, though, <laughs> that I asked <coughs> in ago, and it has to do with what kind of stress we're trying to induce so he he seemed to kind of underscore the importance of getting max fat oxidation i asked him a question about whether we're specifically trying to target fat oxidation or we're just trying to target the mitochondria because i still in in my mind if we're trying to really just stress the mitochondria then to me, it would seem that you would be able to, to produce more stress by going up into zone three, four, five, still below VO2 max. And even though now you're calling upon more glucose and less fat, so fat oxidation may not be as, as high in terms of percentage contribution to the ATP that you're generating, you would, you're still you're producing more total ATP at that higher intensity, and it's all uh, aerobic energy production occurring in the mitochondria. So that's still interesting yeah. for me to think about. Yeah, I don't feel like I have a clear answer on that either. I think it was a great question. And then it made me think about, so when you guys are talking about that, what came to mind was when you do like really high-intensity interval training, you have that epoch effect, right? Excess post-oxygen consumption. So in the days or hours after, you're metabolizing the byproducts from that session aerobically. Does that count to mitochondrial function? Even though you know, you've done the hard workout, you've absolutely smashed yourself for 20, 30 minutes, your mitochondria are then metabolizing those substrates aerobically after. Even if the session was, and again, like Rooney didn't like us using this, but like more anaerobic, right? The mitochondria are still working. They're still doing something. And does it count if they do their job after the session? So, I mean, all of these things, to be honest, the deeper you get into it, the more you just think, like, what do I need to know? 
Like, what, how does this help me? You know? And I think that sometimes, because we're such science dorks, we like really want to know these answers. But most people listening just want to know, how do I do my zone two? Why should I do it? Help me to set up a workout. Yeah, and we know enough to give people information that can dramatically improve their health, even though we may not have the answers to <laughs> all of the questions to kind of fine tune and say, what's the absolute best protocol? Before we get into those, some of those practical takeaways, you and I were talking before offline about a sort of study that would be interesting to look at. Right. So Inigo kind of made it clear that the surrogate marker for mitochondrial function is lactate. And as you improve mitochondrial function, you have better lactate clearance. And he spoke about looking at people with metabolic syndrome. When you study those people relative to average adults or elite athletes, you see much less or, or worse lactate clearance. So their lactate is starting to increase at a much lower intensity. Wouldn't it be interesting to have studies that look at different uh, interventions with varying intensities of exercise? So you take a group of people at the at baseline, all people get their their lactate measured to see where their lactate threshold is, and then have some people who are put into a zone two intervention some people are put into some type of zone three four intervention some are in a zone five four five sort of hit intervention maybe some people are put into a 80 percent zone two with 20 percent hit all of these different ideas and protocols that are out there <clears throat> and then come back and see which intervention best improved lactate clearance or lactate threshold yeah i mean i, I imagine indigo would say that like a strictly zone two 100 percent of the time just for the sake of this experiment would improve their mitochondrial function more than a strictly zone five based training program and i should have added all of that would be volume matched right okay. across those and volume i mean there's a couple ways to define volume so how would you how would you match the volumes because is it like a time In intensity by duration yeah that's it it's got to take into account power output right because you can do zone two like for example when you do your zone two you're sitting on a bike how many watts are you holding generally for the first let's say the first 30 minutes what's your like comfortable wattage do you look at watts i think you it's know? in the 130s okay maybe 140 yeah i would i would have thought for you probably like 140 to 50 yeah. you'd hold that for at least 30 minutes and you'd be comfortably in that zone two target heart rate and you'd pass the talk test which you spoke to him mm -hmm. about, which is basically the ability to have a conversation. It'll be broken sentences, but you can talk. And another thing that I like to do actually is, is like a nasal breathing test to, because nasal breathing is a really good intensity regulator, right? So imagine this, you set out to go on a run. I did this the other day. I did Bondi to Bronte and back. <clears throat> I set out on this run and my intensity regulator was just try to nasal breathe the whole time right? From Bondi to Bronte and back, I will not breathe through my mouth. Because what that does is as soon as you push into a higher zone, like zone three and four, naturally, you're going to try to breathe through your mouth. You need to get more oxygen in, right? You just can't breathe fast enough through your nose. But if you just nasal breathe the whole time, it's much easier to stay in that lower moderate uh, zone. So, I mean, that's another thing people can do when they tr try to use their zone two is 
see if you can do it nasal breathing. Close your mouth the whole time. Use that to, to regulate your intensity. So let's say you hold 150 watts for 30 minutes and then you're, you're going to do 60 minutes on the bike. If you just held that, the next 30 minutes, your heart rate's going to start to climb. You get this drift, right? So you have to slightly drop your wattage. I mean, obviously, elite athletes don't have to, but mere mortals like you and I, we're going to drop our watts a little bit towards the back end of a session, right? So if you're trying, if we're talking about like volume matching, it's actually it is quite tricky because it's it's hard to know exactly how much volume of hit you're doing and how it compares to how much volume of zone two you're doing. It is hard to do, but in studies they can control for it. But I'm saying the general p- person doing this kind of training. You're not yeah. controlling for this. Well, you might not even need to control for it. You could do it more of as a as a kind of free living randomized controlled trial. Right. So you get it's outside of a lab, but okay. you get really good generalizability right. because it's how people would do it. If right. you just prescribe this to the average person, yeah. say off you go, go do it. Yeah. Adherence is going to be a part of that sure. and how well people do it or don't do it. Uh, <clears throat> but that's representing what will occur in real life. Mm. Yeah, like if you said to somebody, you know, one group are going to go <clears throat> hiking or running through a national park at any pace you want. It could be hills, it could be flat, whatever. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then the other group is going to be doing zone two strictly on a bike, measuring exactly what their heart rate is, passing the torque test, nasal breathing, RPE of four to five or whatever it is. Yeah, you're going to see differences. And I wonder how much each one would affect mitochondrial function. And but then the other question is, I guess you, you can answer this. Why should we even care about mitochondrial function? Like, why is this buzzword so important at the moment? Like, a lot of your episode was about improving the function of mitochondria. Why? I think the assumption is that mitochondrial dysfunction is involved in the development of metabolic conditions. And there are some assumptions there. But certainly, Inigo's work has looked at people with metabolic syndrome. And they have mitochondrial dysfunction. And you, he measures that through looking at fat oxidation and looking at lactate as surrogate markers of mitochondrial function. And, I mean, there, there's, there's more research on mitochondrial function. It's considered one of the hallmarks of aging as well. So I, I think it's part of it, but I also think that we, we need to not just hyper-focus on zone 2 and mitochondria and forget that there's all of these other uh, adaptations that come with different types of exercise that we need to think about as well. Yeah. Heart function, exactly. stroke volume, um, strength. And when 300 minutes came up a week, one of the things, and I didn't mention this within the episode, but I reflected on it, was 300 minutes is quite a lot of zone two a week. And <laughs> I think that's something that's worth consideration at the individual level is if you listen to that episode and then you think okay i need to do 300 minutes of zone two and that comes at the cost of doing resistance training and some high intensity training are you in a better net position or are you better off doing 150 minutes of zone two a week but then in the other 150 minutes that you have because people are busy in the other 150 minutes, you're doing a couple of full body resistance training workouts and some hit. Yeah. Yeah, 300 minutes a week. <clears throat> if all you're doing is zone two, it's, it is doable. You still have to do 45-ish minutes a day. It's quite a lot. Or 90 minutes every other day. But who's, you know, the general person, they want to tick off a few boxes. Resistance training, right? Stimulate the muscles and bones. 
zone two or some sort of cardio training. It doesn't even have to be zone two. Let's just call it cardiovascular training or steady state training or interval training, whatever you want to call it. I think that 300 minutes, by the way, the guidelines are 150 to 300. Sure. So he he's saying that 150 is low and he recommends 300, but the guidelines in Australia anyway are 150 to 300 minutes or 75 minutes to 150 minutes of high-intensity training. Mm. So half but in that moderate, in that 150 to 300 minutes of moderate intensity uh, exercise, which is in the guidelines, does that also include things like yoga? No, I think they're talking about steady state aerobic training. Because mm. so, I looked it up and it, I don't believe the wording is moderate intensity cardiovascular training. Have a quick Google here now, see what it says. From my memory, I read this recently because I put it in my book. I'm pretty sure it's talking about moderate intensity continuous training. And the, the point about continuous is that it is nonstop, right? So accumulate 150 to 300 minutes, which is two and a half to five hours of moderate intensity physical activity. Okay, there we go. Or 75 to 150 minutes, which is an hour and a quarter to two and a half hours of vigor- vigorous intensity physical activity activity okay. and then in addition to that physical activity it's separately it says do muscle strengthening activities it's very, it's very on at least two days each week so i remember looking this back up right. and thinking okay when they say moderate intensity physical activity are they talking specifically to what the literature would describe as moderate intensity cardiovascular training well, now i think no which is what inigo's talking about right or are they just saying anything that's kind of moderate intensity whether it's yoga or yes. hiking or sitting yeah. on a bike, swimming, all these things, mm-hmm. they all count to that 150. I would say that minutes. is the answer now, now that I think about it because these guidelines are for broad public health messaging. Okay, For the general population, how many minutes of activity should you do per week and what should your heart rate roughly be? That's what this is saying. So this is saying the modality could be yoga, it could be jogging, it could be playing sport, it could be tennis doesn't matter what it is, 150 to 300 minutes a week. They're just trying to get you on your feet with your heart rate above rest in a moderate zone for that amount of time. All right, so I was wrong. I thought it was continuous training, but it's not. It, it's going to be physical activity. It could be anything. Which means you'll get there if you do 25 to 30 minutes a day right. of anything that's considered moderate intensity. Sure. How would you define that? Now, they don't specifically define that, but that's probably comes back to 60 to... 75% of max heart rate. Right. And you could do it by doing yoga in the morning for 40 minutes and then lift weights the next day. And then the next day you walk your dog for an hour. This all adds up. It all counts. And I think, that, again, the point is to prevent people becoming sedentary. So these guidelines are a little bit different to your conversation with Inigo. And this is another thing I was thinking about with your, your episode with him. He mentioned an 80-20 rule. Right, 80% of your training in zone two, 20% in the higher zone four and five. That breakdown makes all the sense in the world if you're an elite athlete doing huge volumes of cardio. Right, Because imagine you're doing, like he said, some of his athletes are doing, I can't remember the number he said, but it was wild how many hours per week they were doing on the bike. Huge amounts. If you're doing zone four and five for even more than 50% of the time, you are going to get so fatigued, you're going to be absolutely exhausted. So if you're an elite athlete, of course, do 80% in zone two. But if you're a general person in the population who's just trying to be healthy, 
and you're not moving that much per week, let's say you're only hitting 150 or not even, <clears throat> and you decide to make 80% of that zone two, I would say you're not squeezing the sponge right. dry. You're so as you out, have less time available, that the intensity ratio, go up. that percentage needs to become more equal. I think so. I think the intensity requirement goes up if you have less time, for sure. So let's say, okay, here's an example. Let's say you can only do 20 minutes of cardio three times per week for whatever reason. Your life doesn't allow you to do any more. You're going to do three workouts a week for 20 minutes. Who's going to get fitter faster and who's going to burn more calories? Not the calories is the goal. It's a byproduct. Who is going to get more bang for buck? Let's just put it that, that way. The person who splits that, that, so that's one hour a week. An hour a week, 20 minutes, three sessions a week. So one person would- One person only does zone two, brisk walks, simple cycling, but they do their 20 minutes of cardio and then that's it. That's done. They do that three times a week. The other person for that same 20 minutes does HIIT training. They go hard. They really, really push their heart rate nice and high. Bang for buck. Who do you think is going to get better? HIIT training every day of the week. Right. So this, this is where the conversation gets a bit muddy. Context matters. If you're not doing much volume over the week anyway, I would say push towards higher intensities. Really squeeze the sponge dry. If you're doing huge volumes, definitely lean on the zone too. Less fatigue. It's it's mentally, it's so much easier to show up for a cardio workout when you know it's just going to be a nice, easy zone too. Right? Like the mental fatigue that comes with doing too much hit or too much strength training, it's kind of draining. But like for like sometimes, you know, my whoop will tell me that I'm a bit under-recovered, I've slept terribly, my recovery sucks, HRV's down, resting heart rate's gone up a bit. That day, I'm going to swap my really intense hit workout for something just like a zone two. 60 minutes on the bike, listen to a podcast, listen to some music. It's almost like an active recovery day, but you're still getting great benefits, getting those mitochondrial benefits and all the stuff that you guys spoke about. So what do you think is the minimum amount of time someone should spend per week in zone four or five minimum i think you can go pretty low with this if you if you truly get into zone four and five and this is the thing i think that a lot of people think they're in zone four and five and aren't getting close and I, I, the reason i say that is because i've got brought in a study that i want to talk about later looking at this exact question is like basically when you think you're getting a great workout, your, perce- your perception of the workout is that was extremely hard. I'm very puffy. You know, I can't talk at all. It, this is extremely difficult. And then they look at the heart rates and it's not quite what you think. And even today, I did this workout that I was like on the floor. At one point, I was like lightheaded. I barely touched zone five, right? But so, I think, what, so, so I didn't answer your question at all. But the minimum, <laughs> the minimum intensity, <laughs> I would say, so the minimum time, are you saying? In, in zone five or percentage of your workouts? Minimum time. If someone is going to invest into quote-unquote high-intensity interval training, yeah. and I'll get you to define that. I know you've done it before yeah. because there's a lot of different ideas about what that means, right? right. And you see stuff on social media or in, in gyms yeah. that might be a little different to the literature. Yeah. But if we're talking about pure hit training, how many minutes do would I need to do in a week to get some type of positive adaptation well i mean there are studies showing that you can get benefits from just a four minute interval if you do get your heart rate to what the criteria say is qualified as hit which, which is 85 yeah it's a minute it's about 85 percent of your max heart rate some people think over 90 but most of the literature has it at 85 percent 
You can do that by just putting on a four-minute interval at the end of your zone two. And if you're doing that a couple times a week, I reckon in 12 to 16 minutes, you can get a lot of benefit. So four-minute interval. A hard four-minute interval. It sounds long, I know. Does does the person need to be at 85% of max heart rate or higher for the entire four minutes? Ideally, your time in that range will be close to 100%. That's the that's the ideal. The problem is it takes people a while to get into... So you need to ramp then. Right. So, so do you want to should we go through the study quickly? Because yeah. it's so topical. Like, I mean, this is literally what the study was looking at. Yeah, where, where I'm trying to, to go here is I want... I want people to understand across a week, I I assume that many people listening are probably quite time poor. And if they're going to implement HIT training, so a zone four or five session, Mm -hmm. and they're going to have zone two, and let's work off, let's say that they have three hours a week Mm -hmm. combined to do zone two and zone five. Yep. I want to help them understand what that looks like in terms of a split, mm-hmm. how they know if they're in zone two and zone five, and what a zone two and a zone five workout actually looks like in terms of how you program that or structure it. Yeah. So I like the idea. I mean, this is what I did in my cardio program that I just released. And the reason I did this is because I think it provides variety. I think it's fun. I think you 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 don't feel like you're too repetitive right so i've got three cardio workouts a week the first one is a zone two workout for the vast majority of the time and right on the end of it we tag on a four minute hit finisher and this finisher ideally will be four minutes of all out effort but the way i structured in the program is that it's four minutes but using intervals for example it might be 45 seconds all out with a 15 second active rest so you're not just sitting there in your rest you're still pedaling at a low intensity and you might repeat that for four minutes right so you it's an interval style workout that goes for about four minutes at the end of your zone two that's one style that i've put out the next one is a three four workout so so zone three and four cardio up to you know i I progress it over the weeks but roughly let's say 45 minutes to up to 60 minutes okay and in this workout i don't actually care really what you focus on, how long you're in three and four, or do you touch on five, do you go to, I don't really care. It's just more of a not so strict, go at your own pace, have a bit of fun with it, but try to stick in that three to four. And then another workout, the third cardio of the week is strictly zone, we'll call it zone five or high intensity. So this is like an evidence-based protocol, which the most popular one that's been studied is a four by four protocol. So it's four minutes of work, three minutes of active rest, repeat four times. Now, that one, I think, is the best. If you really care about improving your VO2 and getting your cardiorespiratory fitness up quick, I like the idea of having a workout dedicated to that. You know you're going to show up to the gym, you're going to smash it out for 28, 30 minutes, and it's done. So four minutes work, and this can be done on a a rowing machine. Yeah, rowing machine. Stationary bike. Yep. Are they the best two modalities for this? I I like the ones that include your upper body. So you could do it on an assault bike even if you wanted. Four minutes um, on an assault bike. I know it's it's painful, it's a scary thought. But I personally, I do it on a rowing. That's machine. enough to make you vomit. I know the thought can make you vomit. <sighs> the assault bike's horrible. I did it today. It was, and if someone has never done this before, do they start with a four-minute interval? Well, 
the thing about so when you characterize the heart rate response to this exact protocol so there's a great study looking at this exact thing it shows that the first interval right so the first four minute block that you do takes the longest for you to get to above 85 percent. so the first like two minutes almost you're just slowly ramping up to 85 even though you're trying your hardest the heart rate doesn't just respond like that it takes time to get there so for two minutes you're trying to get there then you get into that above 85 you might hold that till the end of your four minutes then you begin your active rest drop the intensity down the cadence down you're just you're cruising for three minutes right let's say at like 50 percent of your max I've have really you ever cr- done that on an assault bike on an assault no, no, bike no, 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 i haven't if you got if any psychos out there want to try it <laughs> let me know yeah but um if someone hasn't <clears throat> ever done this i'm not sure starting on the assault bikes probably no nah, don't, don't start on a stationary bike if you have good rowing form and you know how to row jump on a rowing machine it's amazing yeah. you're, you're just you're stimulating so much muscle mm-hmm. you get your heart rate up really quick you could do it even on a ski erg but i would i recommend a rowing machine i, I love ro- the rowing machine as love well. it as well I, I if i'm doing this even after zone two and i do zone two on a stationary bike you'll swap over i swap over i know i just find it easier on the yeah. rowing machine and you can just sort of like crank it out it feels it's actually a good muscular workout when too. i say easier i mean easier to get my heart rate into the right range right. Yeah, so it takes a couple of minutes to get into the range. Then in the recovery, so this is what's interesting as well. And I actually think, I want to design a study. If I could design a study, this is what I would do. This, what the studies currently do is they do the four-minute hard, three-minute active recovery, repeat four times. In that three-minute active rest, the fitter individuals, their heart rate gets lower, right, quicker. So they get, a, they get closer to rest in those three minutes than somebody who's very They recover very unfit. quickly. They recover very quickly. That means... For them to ramp back up into zone four five, they, they got to build it up from that lower recovery point, right? But less fit people, this is the, what's counterintuitive. Less fit people have a easier time getting back up to that eighty five percent for the the work interval because their heart rate doesn't drop as low in the rest. So if you're super fit, then Let's see, you yeah, might the, want to reduce your rest time. There we go, sir. This is the study I wanted to design. So I would like to see a four by four protocol, but instead of three minute rest for very fit people, maybe they have two minutes rest. Right, so, or perhaps the study would set a target heart rate. So it's it, it, the study would look like either you do three minutes of active rest, or when your heart rate reaches say a certain number, which is going to be decided through calculations, then it's time to go right. again. Or it drops a certain percent. Correct. Exactly. So that's what I would like to see. But then, when you look at the studies again, um, interval three, interval two, three, and four it becomes much quicker to get into that above 85. So the first one might take two minutes. Then when you go into interval two, that second block, you'll get there a bit quicker. Interval three, even quicker. And interval four, you're almost, you know, straight away. So not all of these intervals are going to look the same, right? You have to understand that commit to the whole protocol because it's the real juice is in three and four when you can get into, spend a lot of time in that above 85% heart rate. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. 
With the new edition of ApoB, Inside Tracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. Okay, so just to recap there, in terms of minimum effective volume, was it just one interval? So four, one four-minute interval? On the end of your zone two. That is that is a minimum volume. I, th- I think that's a, a minimum week. effective dose. Right. And so if someone's listening and thinking, I've never, ever done this, I've never done HIIT, we've said heart rate should be 85% or higher, max heart rate. Is there an easier way of just knowing someone understanding if they're working out at, at the high right enough intensity. intensity in terms of how, how should they feel while yeah. they're doing this? Okay, so I'm going to bring up a study to answer this question. <laughs> Full of studies today, mate. I've got yeah. studies in my back pocket here. So this this stu- this study here was looking at <laughs> kettle just make a noise. <laughs> telling you to drink it. So this study here, I'll read you the title of it. Um, Evidence based versus social media, high intensity. So start that again. Evidence based versus social media based high intensity interval training protocols physiological and perceptual responses okay so this study is looking at the protocol that i just mentioned a four by four right that would be an evidence-based protocol this one's not looking at a four by four this one's looking at 60 seconds on 60 seconds off of cycling right so in the 60 on again your target you're trying to get to above 85 then you have your 60 seconds off they also had an evidence-based protocol that was using body weight so it's the exact same protocol 60 on 60 off for 10 repeats but instead of doing cycling, you're doing burpees, um, star jumps, like all that sort of stuff. 
Those are considered the evidence-based protocols. And then the social media-based protocols were a Tabata. Do you know what Tabata is? It's a 20 on 10 off. And they did it for 20 repeats. So 20 on 10 off 20 times. Why is that considered social media? Has that never been studied? Well, this is the thing. So this this particular study picked the most popular um, social media protocols on YouTube based on views. So yeah, I think it had like 25 million views. They chose that as something that clearly the population liked doing it. It's got a lot of views. It's very popular. A lot of people just want to do what their favorite fitness influencer tells them. Right? So you'll often see on social media people saying, you know, try my hit circuit guaranteed to get your heart rate up blah 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 right which is probably true but the question that they're trying to answer is is this style of training that's promoted by social media quote-unquote experts equivalent to the physiological responses and the perceived responses that you get from a real evidence-based protocol that we know improves vo2 max so they looked at the social media protocol was a body weight tabata so push-ups for 20 seconds rest for 10 squat jumps for 20 seconds rest for 10 etc and then another one, which was 40 on 20 off for 15 intervals, okay? And then they look at the results. So everyone's doing these, I think it was a crossover design, so I'm pretty sure they did all the And what are they measuring? <clears throat> so they're measuring heart rate per session, average heart rate per session, peak heart rate per session. They're measuring, um, I think actually the outcomes that they measure, this one was mo- mostly related to are they in the heart rate zones that you would expect from HIIT training, which is 85%, that threshold, right? It's very important to get there. They measured lactate and a couple of other things as well because they think lactate is a – the accumulation of lactate during HIIT is an, a, um, like a, it stimulates mitochondrial adaptation. So you actually do want to get your lactate nice and high during these sessions to get a response. So I'll tell you what some of the results were here. Um, Peak heart rate, so the max heart rate that they reached per session was pretty similar between all the groups. Okay, but that's not what we really care about here, because you can hit your peak heart rate for two seconds and it goes down. Like it, that, that doesn't tell you anything. What we want to know is time in range. So how long, what percentage of your interval are you in the range of above eighty-five? Body weight sixty-sixty, so sixty seconds of you know whatever the body weight exercise is with sixty seconds rest. That ranked the highest for time in range, ninety-four percent. So. 94% of the time, they were above 85% of the max heart rate, which is really good. The lowest, what do you think the lowest would be? Who ranked the lowest? Sorry, what protocol ranked the lowest, do you think? Based on, you can get this wrong, it's okay, mate. What were the options again? So we've got the evidence-based protocol, which is 60 on 60 off times 10. One of them was cycling and one of them was body weight. So two protocols. Social media was body weight only. There was no cycling, it was body weight. Tabata, 20 on 10 off. For 20 or 40 seconds on 20 seconds off for 15 intervals i'd like to see wh- where your mind goes with this i don't think it's tabata you, as, as in what do you mean the, you don't think tabata was the lowest in range okay why this is an interrogation because <laughs> was it 20 <clears throat> on 10 off 20 seconds on 10 seconds off I could be wrong. It might not be long enough on to get to the target. Correct. Ding, ding, ding. I think I just you, you proved said, myself wrong there. You, but you fixed it. <laughs> I didn't even tell you. you. You got to it. So Tabata ranked the lowest for time in range. And it was, it was like less than 74% of the so time. So the moral of the story there being the duration is going to be important. The, the duration of the interval is absolutely key to get your heart rate into the target zone. 
So going back to what you were just saying, how does somebody know, right, if they're in the right zone without measuring their heart rate? This study kind of showed that even though they thought they were getting an excellent workout because they checked for like perceived enjoyment, how hard it was, all these things, they said, this is great. Like there was a great workout. It was very hard, blah, blah, blah. But really, when you look at their heart rate, they never got to the same heart rates as the evidence-based protocols. So it's not enough to think you trained really hard. And literally the same thing happened to me this morning at this endurance event. I thought it was such a hard workout. I was ready to see how much percentage was in zone five and it was like less than 1%. So it's not enough to be breathing heavy and hurting. You've got to have some objective feedback. Mm. So and you I think, need to really look at your heart rate. I think rate. you need to measure your heart rate. Okay. Yeah. So then let's, let's break this down for people and this is also going to help with the zone two calculations. How does someone calculate their max heart rate We've spoken about this a little bit before and we've spoken a lot offline. 220 minus age is the common calculation that everyone's heard, but there are better calculations. Mm. So how do you, how, how would you like people to kind of navigate that space to step, step one, the listener right now, calculate their max heart rate, short of not having a wearable that's telling them what their max heart rate is. Right. By the way, I think the wearables use an equation that is the simple one. I'm pretty sure most wearables would just use 220 minus your age because when you have start your profile, tell them your age, they just do a quick calculation. There are so many calculations out there to calculate max heart rate. Um, the one that I have been leaning on, I can't remember the exact numbers here. It's a bit numbery. We can put the, we can, the exact calculations in Because the there's, there's, there's dozens, but it's something like, do you remember? Well, there was a... Uh, a one for females and one for males. Right. There's also gender-specific ones. Gulati well. was the female one. Right. Um, the Carvernon method is for heart rate reserve, which we spoke about. That takes into account your resting heart rate. Right. So either way, there's going to be, in the show notes, there'll be a calculation yeah. for male and for female. I think it wasn't it like 200, 208 minus 0. 0.7 times age or something like that. Yeah. Okay. And then gonna, 211. Right. And there was a 209. Like it was, right. They're all close. At the end of the day... No matter which one you use, they're going to be pretty much one or two or three beats off what you probably are. And again, just remember, this is a calculation. This, this calculator does not know your actual physical ability or your fitness or how your heart is developed. and It doesn't know. So you, it might spit out 185 as your max heart rate. You might then jump on a VO2 test and it shows you that it's like 200 beats per minute. So it doesn't know. It's a ballpark, which again, I'm in support of what Inigo was saying is heart rate alone is not good enough as a measure for the intensity of your workouts because of this exact thing. There's variation between individuals. The calculations for max could be a little bit off. Anyway, theoretically, you're going to calculate your max heart rate using one of these calculations. And all you need to know for that is your age and your sex. That's it. Correct. You're going to use that if you want. If you want to keep this really simple, you're going to try keep your heart rate between about 60 to 70. We'll say 60 to 70 because that's like the popularized version of zone two. 60 to 70% of that number, your max heart rate, is your target zone. So you're going to jump on the bike, start pedaling. It'll take a little, it'll take a few minutes to get into zone two. I don't know if you've checked this for yourself. It's really interesting. Sometimes it takes me like 10, 15 minutes to get into to, to the like perfect zone two. Um, Spend your workout in zone two, meaning in that heart rate range, and cross-check with a few other variables, right? So you're going to see, do you pass a talk test? If there was a mate next to you on a bike or if you're on the phone, could you have a conversation? 
sure, you're going to be a bit puffy, but you should be able to talk, right? In comparison, if you're doing a zone five HIIT workout, you'll barely be able to say a word. Right? You're really exhausted. Um, if you can try the nasal breathing, I recommend that because that that'll regulate your intensity naturally. Um, as soon as you, or even do this test, this is interesting. Push to zone, so sit in zone two, nasal breathe, and then crank up your either your reps per minute, your how quickly you're pedaling, your cadence, or crank up the resistance a little bit. So your your RPM might drop, but the resistance is up. We're so talking your body, about a bike here, a stationary a bike. bike. I'm talking about stationary bike. And then go hard and see your heart rate go into zone three and four, and you, you won't be able to nasal breathe. You literally will almost pass out. You'll have to open your mouth and start taking in big breaths. So I think, I mean, I think just let's keep it simple. Have a, have a target heart rate. Know how to do the talk test and all these things. Um, and then the same. So that was zone two, which was calculate your max heart rate using those calculations we'll put in the show notes. You multiply that max heart rate by... 0.6 and also by 0.7 yep that'll give you your your lower bound and your upper bound for your zone two yep. it'll give you a range like it might spit out 110 to 122 right right that's your zone two target range yep. now you uh, you can track your heart rate with your wearable while you're riding do the the torque test yep. can you breathe through your nose can yep. you uh, are you a little bit puffy a little bit sweaty yep that's enough for most people and, and then the next step for them is to think about the duration in that session and across an entire week. Right. And what does that look like? We come back to that. Right. For zone five, you also take that max heart rate. Yep. But instead of multiplying it by the 0. 0.6 and 0. 0.7, which gave you your zone two target range, mm-hmm. we're multiplying by... I like 0. 0.85. Okay. So you take that max heart rate, you multiply by 0. 0.85... And that's where you want your heart rate to be above above that in your working sets during those four minute intervals. Yes, or if you're doing the sixty on sixty off version that we just explained during that sixty seconds, try get it above. And the reason why it's it, the reason why this it works for a sixty second interval and it works for a four minute interval is because of the work to rest ratio. It's all about that ratio. This is a one to one ratio. So in the sixty seconds off, let's say. Let's say you get your heart rate to 90% in that, in that hard working set. It's not going to drop that low in 60 seconds off, right? It's not long enough to really recover and get it close to rest, right? Your intensity is going to be higher in that 60 on, 60 off than a four-minute interval. Yeah, because you don't have to really ramp up into it. After three minutes of active rest, if you're fit, you're ready to go. Like it's almost like, like I did this on the rowing machine. And at two minutes, I, I, I was like, I feel ready. I'm going to check the clock. And I was like, yeah, I've got another minute of rest. And I was like, this doesn't feel right. I feel like I'm ready right now. So, yeah, I think that this, I, I reckon this protocol would feel harder just because the rest is shorter for sure. But back to the minimum effective volume. So I think earlier you said even if you, you can get some positive adaptations if you do a four-minute high-intensity interval session once a week. Yeah. That's four minutes consecutively. What if I choose the 60 second on, 60 off? Mm. If I repeat that four times, Mm -hmm. so I have four minutes of total work, is that equivalent to doing a four-minute interval? Yeah, if your time in range is above 85 and it's equivalent, I think it would be. Um, But I I also don't know the answer to what the minimum effective dose is for this sort of training, to be honest. I don't know. I think four minutes would be enough to get some adaptation. 
What's optimal? I don't know. I remember seeing one study, and we can dig it up. Yeah. I think it was people with metabolic syndrome, and it compared one four-minute interval versus right. three or four, mm-hmm. and most of the benefit was from just doing the ones. Right. But there was some extra benefit. Of course. But it was a it was diminishing returns. Exactly right. That's why I'm saying the optimal dose, I'm not sure what the answer is. But I do know that if you just did one hit work, like a, a, an evidence-based protocol per week, which they roughly last 20 minutes on average, 20 to 30 minutes. If you do that once a week and you truly do it properly, I think that's enough. I don't, I don't think you need to be doing it every day. Certainly not. So if I just want to start off with four minutes a week and I, and I choose either the four-minute consecutive protocol or the 60 on, 60 off, and I, I walk into the gym, and I'm going to do this on a rowing machine, you said then it takes about 20 minutes. Now, I, I know the answer to this question, but I think we need to spell this out. Yeah. I'm not going to walk in there and just go straight into the four-minute interval. No, you're definitely not. You're going to, you're going to do a, a warm-up, ideally on the machine that you intend to do the workout on. So what does that look like? So what I like to do, I have what I call a ramp protocol. I put this in my book, in the training program. And this ramp protocol I use for before weights training and I use it before cardio training if it's high-intensity training. I don't do a ramp protocol for the zone two because zone two is the intensity of your warm-up essentially, right? So the warm-up should be in basically zone two, okay? So what I would do is jump on a rowing machine for four to five minutes at a really nice zone one, two pace. Start in zone one, ease your way into zone two, Try to spend about four or five minutes in zone two on a machine. You just want to feel puffy, a little bit sweaty and warm, right? Just build that sweat and feel like your body temperature is actually increased. Then I like to get off and do a little bit of mobility and stretching, right? So I'll do some like active and dynamic stuff just to get the muscles moving and then get back on the machine and you're going to do quite a hard set of only like 10 or 15 strokes at say 60% of your max. Then you're going to do another set at about 70%, then 80%. Then when you feel primed, start your workout. That's when you're going to do that four-minute interval and going nice and hard. But yeah, you're not going to just show up to the gym, jump on a machine, mm-hmm. and start sprinting. And if you have just finished your zone two, you've done an hour of zone two, can you go straight into the hit? Like if they're doing what you're, you're doing where you'll do zone two on a bike and then jump on a rowing machine, I would still prime your body for the ramp up a little bit ramp a little bit do 20 seconds or 15 seconds quite hard then do another 15 seconds a little bit harder and just ramp your way up to the intensity Mm -hmm. that you think you're going to be pulling for four minutes or whatever the interval is that you're doing okay so let's try and wrap all of this up i'm conscious of trying to give people some takeaways they can grab a hold of yeah like (laughs) a real practical takeaway right the last episode was very uh, in-depth science. I'm not sure whether we've added a lot of clarity yet. <laughs> Hopefully we no, have. I think, I think we have. Hopefully we have. Yeah. Uh, I just don't want to leave people more confused no. um, than, than before they turn this episode on. Yeah, so the, the, the main points here that we, we're making is that you can be very intentional with the cardiovascular training that you're doing. Yes. And understanding your max heart rate to begin with is a good starting point you can use that to then understand what is your zone two what is your zone five when you're in zone two you're not just going to be relying on heart rate 
you're also relying on some of these other cues. Mm -hmm. Can you talk? Are you a bit puffy? Can you breathe through your nose? All that sort of stuff. Someone has, let's say, how much time do you think the average person has a week to dedicate to cardiovascular training? Just to cardiovascular? Again, it comes down to personal goals. Like some people, their goal is get stronger or get bigger, right? Hypertrophy. Some people don't care about cardio. In fact, there's this like... I'm thinking about the person who is interested in their health span optimization and longevity. Yeah. That's who I'm thinking about right here. And let's say they have five hours a week Mm. and half of that or two, two and a half hours of that is resistance training. Yeah. So they have two and a half hours to do cardiovascular exercise. Yeah. Are they doing 80% of that in zone two? Is that is that where we're sort of guiding them at the well, moment? Well, this is a good example because what you just said there is basically 150 minutes for zone two, or sorry, for cardiovascular training and 150 minutes for resistance training. I think that's a great way to do it. I think that that's a nice split. It's balanced. You're going to get the best of both worlds. You don't. I don't think you have to spend 80% of zone two, to be honest, If in that example. If you're only dealing with 150 minutes per week, I don't think it should all, well, at least the vast majority should be in zone two. I just don't think that makes all, the, all that sense. I, I think... I think the way that I explained it before actually is is a better way. It's that you have a, a dedicated workout for zone two. You have a dedicated workout for a sort of three and four and a dedicated workout for zone five. I like that. But at the end of the day, again, we're getting into the weeds. If you just have 20 to 30 minutes a day that you think you can do some cardio, I really think that the most important thing is that you just do it. And I don't think that it really matters as to what zone you're in and what percentage because you're going to get amazing benefits. This is, where, this is, I think, where the conversation with Inigo got a little bit complicated, is you're always going to get benefits from all kinds of training. Some of them are more unique than others, but generally speaking, all of this cardio is going to improve your VO2 max. HIT is a more time-efficient way to do it and will improve your cardio respiratory fitness more when you compare HIT to, to, to moderate intensity, but it doesn't mean you don't get benefits from moderate intensity. Right And yes, when you do moderate intensity, you may improve mitochondrial function more than if you only did very high intensity, but you're still getting benefit from the high intensity. Mm-hmm. So it's not black and white. It's not an on-off switch. But if you're the more strapped <clears throat> you are for time, yeah, then the more you may want to lean into the higher intensities. Yeah. If you only have like fit, some people do their cardio on the day that they're at the gym doing resistance training. If you're someone who, who does that, you're not going to do 60 minutes of zone two and then 45 minutes of weights. Right. So what what could you do? Do your weights for thirty minutes and then do fifteen to twenty minutes of hit. Like really go hard. Because then you're making the most of that hour. You're definitely going to get the best of, of all worlds if you can do that. That's where hit training is very appealing to people from a, a an ROI in terms of time invested. Yeah, and studies look at this. They look at exactly this. So they look at Moderate intensity continuous training, what is the impact on VO2 max? And they look at HIT training, the impact on VO2 max, and it's more time efficient. You can achieve a VO2 in less time. And it's something like an average of like, have you, have you seen these? It's like 9.7 minutes per session less to reach an equivalent VO2 max improvement. 
So if you're time strapped, the uh, hit training is a great way to to get a great workout. I think the 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 part of the conversation that I found really fascinating with with Inigo was where you were talking about fat burning or the fat burning zone and more glycolytic training that uses glucose and less fat and whether or not that has an impact on fat loss outcomes long term. So that that question Inigo answered in a certain way which he said I don't want to put words in his mouth here, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm pretty sure he said that in his opinion utilizing more fat during your workout which occurs in zone 2, you burn more fat as a fuel predominantly would be better for fat burning and fat loss long term. Okay? So I I looked at a few studies, I wanted to know the answer to this and I looked at two things, fasted versus fed cardio, which is a really good way to manipulate what fuels are being used during your workouts. So the research in this fasted versus fed cardio is pretty clear. Most studies are showing almost the exact same thing, which is that when you do fasted cardio, so imagine first thing in the morning, you've had absolutely nothing, no coffee, just maybe some water, you jump on a bike and you do either whatever, a zone two workout or even just a mixed workout. Okay. Do you burn more fat during that workout? And the answer is yes. You actually do preferentially burn fat as a fuel. Right? The relative contribution of energy comes mostly from fat. Right. At the- but you're not necessarily burning or utilizing more total energy. Exactly. So this is what the studies show. Right. So the answer is yes, you do burn fat. So your body will lean more on fat as a fuel for that workout compared to in a fed state where you're burning more glucose than fat. It's just different substrate. Different substrate. But it's it's not changing the energy equation or energy balance. Right, exactly. And beyond that, when you look at the core, so in that workout, which is a snapshot of this, you know, this very quick snapshot of your day, yeah, faster training, you burn more fat. Fed training, you burn more glucose. But over 12 to 24 hours, when they measure, they measure respiratory quotient or RER, respiratory exchange exchange ratio which is like a ratio of co2 to to o2 but it doesn't matter the point is that number tells you what fuel you're burning the group that did fasted training their rer showed that they were burning more fat during the workout but Mm -hmm. later in the day it switched over to glucose so they burn less fat later in the day whilst the fed group the rer shows that they burn more glucose in that workout but later in the day they switch over and burn more fat and the net effect is there's no difference. So mm. it comes down to personal preference. Like what do you like to do? Right. We're do talking you, about body weight here. Yeah, like fat loss outcomes. Fat, right. Fat mass. Yeah. Right. But well, this is actually just looking at fat oxidation over the day. This study. So RER is telling you what fuel are you burning at rest? What fuel are you burning in a workout? The point of this study was that it didn't actually matter if you were burning more fat during a fasted workout because later in the day you burn less and you burn more glucose. So it balances out anyway. So personal preference, what do you want to do? How do you want to do your training? Do you like to train fasted? Great, do that. If you want to train fed, that's fine too. It doesn't matter that you burn less fat during a fed workout because later in the day you'll burn more fat then. And it's like you say, it's energy balance. This brings up another question. Yeah. And I know we don't have the answer to this and I brought it up before. But Inigo seems to think that stressing the mitochondria or this point of maximum fat oxidation is really the crucial thing. And that's why zone two training is beneficial. If that's the case and fat oxidation is higher 
when you're training in a fasted state. Logic says, if we're trying to stress the mitochondria and fat oxidation specifically, then doing zone 2 training in a fasted state would be preferential over a fed state. Yeah, that that does make sense. I can't lean on study for for this one, but do you know? I, does that make like yes sense? What I'm saying? There? Yes, that for me that does make sense. But I think this is the part of the conversation where we need to explain the difference between the fat that you utilize in a workout and actual fat loss outcomes long term. So I believe that he's saying he's not talking about fat loss outcomes. He's talking about performance and mitochondrial function. Right, so if you're just thinking about how the mitochondria function and you care about metabolic health, then it kind of does make sense, right, to do a zone two workout in a fasted state that leans more on fat oxidation. But that could be tested again. Could definitely have protocols, fed and fasted zone two training. Which which protocol works better to improve lactate clearance? I bet you that study exists. Let's look. Let's look for it after this. (laughs) If it doesn't, if it doesn't, uh, here you go. That's one that, yeah, that's uh, fund that you need to get funding for. Yeah, I, I agree. That's very interesting. Um, but I still don't think that that would impact fat loss outcomes long term. Even if there's not a study for that, I bet you the endurance community has worked it out. Yeah, this exactly. They tested it. Yeah, definitely. You're gonna get. You're gonna hear anecdotes. You're gonna hear people who have done this themselves. So much interesting, like hypotheses, come from. Isn't that why it's train low? And race high. It is. To, to essentially build that metabolic machinery that can burn fat efficiently. And then when you get into your race day, you've got carbs on board, fast-acting fuel, and you've built an aerobic base prior. I, has that been proven? I'm not sure either. Train low, race high. But again, feet on the ground, people living in the world try these things. And a lot of people say that it does make a big difference. Do you know what we need to do? <laughs> long-term randomized control crossovers no, right? we need to have the ultimate deep dive with Inigo and Kieran Rooney in one room in one room roof will blow off mate. <laughs> roof will blow off <laughs> oh it'll be great we'll need yeah some serious translation I reckon we could do that yeah it's another language that biochemistry <laughs> language <laughs> next level alright I can facilitate that I'll let me call Rooney after this yeah, you call I'll Inigo. get on to Inigo and right. we'll see if we can get the four of us together and right. workshop some of these things. It would be hilarious. No one will listen, but no. we'll love it. Not that this matters at all no. to the average person it doesn't. who, you know, they're anything but average. I'm not saying that in a, in a kind of negative way. I'm speaking about myself as well here uh, in terms of what we do when we show up at the gym mm. or, or we decide to go for a jog or whatever it is. Mm. Uh, you know, these are kind of interesting questions to explore. Right, but we can really shift the needle a lot without, you know, studies going into this level of detail. Right, and and, and again, we need to keep nailing what is the goal of the person. Is if it's a body weight fat loss goal, a lot of this stuff doesn't matter. But if it is a longevity goal, and if it's about metabolic health and disease prevention, and you, you know things that are independent of of this weight conversation or, or, or body weight conversation mm-hmm. then i think this stuff is actually really important because if there is something to focusing a lot of time in zone two and actually targeting your mitochondria and improving the function of them and the health of them and improving your metabolic health then this is important but for most people it's just what should i do 
How do I maintain a healthy body weight? How do I be generally fit? I think this is getting very granular, you know, for most people. I know even for me sometimes, like I love this stuff and I love to think about it and learn about it. And then sometimes I'm like, are we just overdoing this? Like, do we really need to be thinking about how much fat we're oxidizing and what the mitochondria are doing? Like sometimes I just think we get distracted by these granular details, but there could be something to it that's really, really important. I just don't know right now. I think this stuff gets more important the the more kind of performance oriented yeah. your goals are. <laughs> yeah. Um, but if if you just look at national statistics, yeah, I think it's like ninety percent of Australians are not meeting the exercise recommendations. Yeah. So we just need to get people doing something. Right. And uh, you know, without getting stuck in the weeds, I think most people can work towards those standard Australian recommendations that are coming back to 150 to 300 minutes of moderate intensity physical activity. Yeah. Which I think maybe one point worth adding there is a very slow walk probably doesn't count. Yeah. Yeah, I think a slow walk depends. Again, it's going to depend on your baseline fitness, exactly. right? Because it is relative. A exactly. slow walk for us might be zone two for someone. Correct. Yes. I guess what I'm saying is, if you're going for that slow that walk, yeah. <laughs> slow walk, whatever that is for you, and your heart rate is not at sixty to seventy percent of your max, doesn't count. Then you're in zone one. Right. You're not puffy at all. Right. You could. You know, you can carry out that conversation with absolute ease. Yeah, I would not consider that as part of your weekly exercise or physical activity. It has to be somewhat strenuous above baseline. I think that that what you're saying there is just called being a human being and living in this world. Like you're going to walk around, you're going to walk from A to B, and you should be able to just do that at a low heart rate. That is just being a, a person. This is more structured. So this whole conversation is around exercise, the word exercise, which is structured exercise. Right? But the guidelines, physical activity doesn't have to be structured. This is kind of the beautiful thing about it. You don't have to have reps and sets. You don't have to have target heart rate zones. You don't have to have a modality. It, it can be anything. You can go and play padel. Padel. <laughs> Emphasize the L. Paddle. Paddle? Well, padel. I've, I've been told to padel. pronounce it correctly. Okay. Padel. Yeah, but mate, going back P- to pronunciation. Padel is I've the heard cor- you pronounce cockinos extremely incorrectly. <laughs> so I'm not going to listen to your recommendations. <laughs> it's all a work in progress. Yeah, pronunciation is. Wait, it wasn't even cockinos. What was the word? True, no, don't in, say it. In don't life, say it. Uh, say it. it's. <laughs> It's always good to remember that you can learn from your mistakes. That's very true. You're good at that. That man. was a mistake, but yeah. it was well it was worth best, it. Oh, it was the best laugh. <laughs> uh, th- those are my favorite laughs, the ones where you're not meant to and you know you shouldn't. Oh, I used to get kicked out of like school assembly all the time for laughing. And I just remember like in the moment thinking, don't laugh, but God, this feels good. And that, that, that was one of the best laughs I've had ever. Like we held it together. I wish we didn't. I wish we just let it out. <laughs> Don't worry. We'll, we'll experience that again soon, That's I'm sure. True. I reckon on our retreats there'll be some proper laughs. Yeah, I hope so. I think so. Uh, I think we did it, dude. Is there yeah. anything else that we need to add? No, I, th- I think we did a pretty good job at covering a lot of what you guys spoke about in your episode. I'm, I'm pretty happy with that. I mean, you know, the, the usual 
flow of our pods, we bring in news of the week and good news and get it off your chest and stuff. But I think we're recording again in what two days? A couple days. We'll do it then. We'll do that then. We'll save it. <laughs> I did I've got bring so a joke much in. I want to get off I my chest. I brought one joke in at least. Yeah, true. <laughs> Dad joke of the week. That's a new segment. Yeah, that can, that can be yours. You own that. Dad joke of the week. Have you got another one? I think he's, I might have. He's digging into his phone. I think I might have another one. He's digging yeah. in. Yeah, oh, I sent this mate. to someone. I sent this to someone uh, a couple of days ago. Go on. This is, a, this is a proper dad joke. Yeah, let me hear it. You sure you want it? Oh, mate, I love your jokes. Let's hear it. <laughs> <laughs> this is such a dad joke, but okay. maybe we can leave people with this. Okay. I uh, finally decided to sell my vacuum cleaner. All it was doing was gathering dust. <laughs> no, I don't approve, mate. I'm sorry. This is like a coffee table dad joke book. Actually, that's what I'm getting you for your birthday. Oh, mate. Okay, that's a challenge for a couple of days' time. Bring better jokes. Bring, bring some good jokes. And bring something you want to get off your chest. Mm-hmm. You got something? Anything that. Good news of the week. Get something off your chest. Is there anything you want? To, you seem so happy. Jokes. I'm Get really happy. Of, you are really happy. Yeah, <laughs> I'm um, happy too. But you know what? I haven't. I haven't done any sort of debunking videos no. or debates. Dude, how much better do you feel? I feel amazing. Oh. I, there's something just really negative about waking up and in the morning going, "Who am I going to take down today?" Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it is yeah, just such a negative. You place to be right and there's so I many content creators though that. that do that like that is a new genre of social media i'm sure you followed many accounts but i do but the the thing that i deeply i think about this quite a lot is that a lot of those accounts and i've i've mind you i've kind of found myself caught up in this here and there not a lot mm. but a lot of those accounts are preaching about health span and longevity yet every day is about taking other people down right. even if you absolutely hate the information that someone else is putting out there that can't be healthy for your own health span no and it's not like they just woke up in the morning you know went for a walk with their dog and then just pulled out the camera and hit go like they're researching this yeah like they're spending there's hours off camera where they're researching the claim made getting studies to the i mean you've done it yours are great by the I've way done it, your takedowns are different Let's be honest. They you're, still, you're gentle. You you're still have respectful. to get into a little bit of a negative mindset. The frustration kind of ensues. Right. Uh, I, you know, I just want to do my zone two. I want to do my zone <laughs> dad jokes. five. I just want to tell dad, dad jokes. jokes. I want to research, just and wanna, speak uh, to people, and put out information. Right. And you know, people can take what they want from that. Right. And also, if you if you think about it, to to get enough content to take people down means your algorithm has to be feeding you videos that are kind of pissing you off on a daily basis. And you just video after video of just this quackery and bullshit that you're seeing on social media. Even that's not good for you. Like in the research of the takedown, even if it's educational, like I'm sure there's, there are some guys who are creating content that is very helpful, but they have to put in hours of watching this shit. No, thanks. I, I, it's not for me. I cannot do that. Sometimes I think about doing it for diabetes because there's so much bullshit out there. Like claims about diabetes and what you should and shouldn't do and what causes it. And this food's terrible and look at my CGM. By the way, 
Did we just do a whole episode without talking about CGMs? No, because you just brought it up. <laughs> well, what we did do... <laughs> we nearly got there. We just did a whole episode without talking about Collingwood Football Club. No, we didn't. I just brought it up. <laughs> They're in the finals. What a game last night. Did Two anyone ago. watch it? What Two percentage of your audience watched that game? Uh, uh, percentage of Australians, I'd say. 2%. F- fairly high percentage. Okay. Tuning in. Collingwood have the most members. Most, most people want to watch them. That's true. Best team to watch. Yeah. I, I could just watch their fans. They're wild. Yeah. Wild. <laughs> Sydney lost. <laughs> Wasn't great. Did you watch last night? I watched it. Yeah. Carlton. We're losing uh, listeners at a rapid pace right now. I mean, I think they're already gone. What happened? We were going. <laughs> Is anyone here? <laughs> oh, gosh. No, nah, man, that was fun. I enjoyed that. It's so good to be back on the mic. There was something else I wanted to add. Let's, let's do it. Let's get into it. I forgot. And I'll bring we it. had a run sheet. I'll, I'll, bring it, I'll bring it to the next episode. Okay. I'm just... Two uh, days' time. All right. Yeah, I also had a couple things, but you know what? It doesn't feel right for today. Well, let's just wrap it up there. Okay, I'm happy with that. That was cool. awesome. I'm just glad to have you back in Bondi, mate. Appreciate you, dude. Definitely missed you over there. You were just watching you doing your podcast tour of the world. Went to some epic places. What was the highlight? Yeah, LA. I was in Sacramento. Yeah. I went on Mark Bell's podcast there. I haven't even spoken to you about that yet. Yeah. I, I, I haven't watched the episode. Oh, yeah. should, I, should I watch it? You can watch that and then okay. maybe we chat about it in a couple of days. Okay, cool. That was fun. I spent time in Boston. I did, uh, in Boston, I did, I went to Whoop's head office. I did nice. a DEXA scan. Yep. Had a look at my visceral fat. Yep. Very happy with that. Yeah. 0.1 pounds. That's so amazing. basically zero. Wow. Which he said was pretty unheard of. He actually said he sees a lot of lean dudes come in. Yes. And you look at them and you think they'll have no visceral fat. Right. And they have quite a lot. Interesting. Um, and, I mean, that goes to show it's not just excessive body overall body fat that can increase visceral right. fat but also the the constituents of your diet can mm-hmm. and i've spoken to richard johnson about this previously right. about different trials showing if you even in a eucaloric context so you have weight maintenance in these interventions if you have one group getting more calories from saturated fat and the other group getting more from polyunsaturated fats that group that eats more saturated fats develops more liver fat Independent of weight loss. Independent, independent of, of weight. calories. This is in eucaloric conditions. Wow. Yeah. So that's super interesting. So I think for me that was kind of reassuring. Oh, absolutely. That the way that I'm eating amazing. is not increasing visceral so Let me fat. ask you a question. If you did that DEXA and it came back and said, Simon, unfortunately your visceral fat is quite excessive, what would you change in your diet? Would you change your diet? Like how would that influence your decision-making going forward because you're currently eating the diet that you believe is the healthiest and thankfully your DEX has showed that it actually is, is giving you some great results. But this is more of like a moral philosophical question. Well, I'd be in a tough position because the research shows unsaturated fats, particularly polyunsaturated fats, are significantly better than saturated fats from a liver fat point of view. Yeah. So if I had a lot of liver fat or visceral fat in a diet where I have very low saturated fat, I'm now in a hard position because I don't have a lot to change there. Right. I also am not overweight and don't have excessive body weight because right. that would be one of the other levers you have to pull is just lose weight. Right, which right? you can't lean on that because you don't have the weight to lose. So I don't have that. So <clears throat> to be honest, if I had have done that and came back with a lot of visceral fat, mm. I would have been pretty worried. Right. And I would have 
I would have really had to dig deep into the literature and call a lot of people to try and work out what was what was going on. And like, what could you even do? Yeah, exactly. I wonder if there's like exercise interventions. Instead of changing your diet, could it be that you need to do different types of exercise or hit different, I don't know, intensities of your workouts or maybe it's, maybe it's doing more zone two or whatever it is. But like, it would be interesting to see if there are non-dietary interventions that can impact your visceral fat. That's something that I think I'd like to look yeah, at. Yeah, let's look that up. I'm not sure I mean? I've ever seen that. Yeah. I wonder if independent like, of weight loss. Independent of weight loss. Like is lower moderate intensity aerobic, you know, steady state training mm. better for burning visceral fat than yeah. high intensity training or, or resistance training? I wonder. The other I mean, there are other things that influence visceral fat accumulation, like hormones. So maybe I would have done a deeper dive into looking at different hormone levels right. through my body. Or um, even the Stuff we spoke about before. Sleep deprivation. Sleep. But I was talking about like the ethnicity part of the, the conversation where certain ethnic, ethnic groups yes. have a tendency to store more visceral fat at a lower body weight. Yeah, right. Right. And, and um, Roy Taylor just did a study on that. I think we were going to save that for the next episode. Let's save it. So we'll talk we'll about that it. in the next episode. But he just recently looked at five out of six people that develop type 2 diabetes are have a BMI above 27. So they're considered overweight or obese. But one out of six have a BMI of below 27. And there have been a, a bunch of studies from Roy Taylor looking at people with a BMI above 27. And if these people lose enough to, uh, body weight, as um, about 10% of their, 10 to 15% of their total body weight, um, can you get the fat in the liver and the pancreas down enough such that their blood glucose returns to that of a normal person without diabetes, without needing to take medications. And they see that for the majority of people, providing you haven't had type 2 diabetes for a very long time and you still have some panc pancreatic function, that the majority of people can go into remission right. with about 10 to 15% of body weight loss. But it has been thought that for the one out of six persons who develop type 2 diabetes at what we'd say is a normal BMI, mm. that it must not be related to visceral fat. It must be... No, you mean subcutaneous fat, that it must be related to visceral. No, that for these people, it was thought that there must be another um, etiology or cause oh, okay. of type 2 diabetes, right? Because right. Their, their BMI is what we would say is quite low. They can't have a whole lot of visceral fat. Right. So it must be something else that's causing type 2 diabetes in these in this subset of people who are normal body weight but develop type 2 diabetes. Yeah, yeah. And um, they ran a clinical trial to look specifically at that. So we'll go into that into yeah. the, the next episode. But, uh, you know, I guess to answer your question, had I had a lot of visceral fat... Yeah. I mean, the first thing is I would never ignore something like that. Right. So I would have looked at it. I understand that visceral fat is uh, metabolically very damaging. Yeah. And I would want to be understanding what's causing that. Mm -hmm. Is it hormonal? Is it diet? Have I missed something in the literature? Right. Uh, is it hormonal? Is it ge genetic? Is it to do with sleep? All yeah. of these things. And... I would have tried to have as many conversations as possible with experts in that area. Yeah. See, the, it's a scary position to be in when you feel like you're doing everything right and then you get a result that's like, hold on a second, this shouldn't be, uh, obviously this is not what happened to you, but I reckon this does happen to people who feel like they're doing everything right. They're trying so 
fucking hard. They're eating the way they're meant to and they're moving their body and still they're getting these like bad cards dealt essentially, like bad blood test results or maybe a scan or an MRI or a DEXA that shows that there is organ issues and fat accumulating where it shouldn't. It's hard. You know, there's not always going to be an answer <clears throat> and you're not always guaranteed that the protocols and interventions you're doing are going to work for everyone. Like there's responders, non-responders, it's a bell curve. So luckily for you, you didn't have to cross It's a that. bell curve and what <clears throat> we see is often the average. Yeah. You know, it pretty much always is. We're looking at the mean, <laughs> the average result. And so customization and personalization is always going to be needed. I think I've even become just more open to the idea that people really need to customize and personalize their their diet perhaps more so than i appreciate it and no in my book i write about plant predominant dietary pattern and sort of aiming to be as plant exclusive as possible particularly when you consider the environment and, and animal welfare but i think i've i've loosened up a little bit over the years in terms of i think plant predominant for sure but more and more when i consider genetics and different lifestyles more and more i think that there's there's a lot of personalization that can be done within that theme and you know as long as you're still ticking those big boxes off so it's low saturated fat it's high fiber you're getting a good amount of plant protein and you're not eating a lot of ultra processed foods there's room to to modify things and see what leaves you feeling best and what bi- what works best for your biomarkers so you're, you're talking about macronutrients here like how much fat like you're not you're not saying that your plant predominant diet has to be a higher carb diet you're saying the, the reason the plants are in there are not about the macros way beyond that and if you feel like you want to have a higher fat diet Sure, go for it. Maybe that works really well for you. Maybe it helps you to maintain a better body weight for longer or whatever it is. Stick to the principles of predominantly plants, lots of fiber. You swing the macros how you want. It might be higher fat for you. It might be higher carb for somebody else. Hmm. Yeah, I do. Th- I I think just having spoken to enough people and even speaking with, with scientists like Professor Christopher Gardner, who's looked at studies comparing low and and high carb diets or low fat versus high carb high fat versus high carb, I should say, that yeah, some people will do better on different macronutrient ratios. And the social media conversation is very dogmatic in this space. But I think you can adopt a healthy low-carb diet. Oh, yeah, I agree. Um, For sure. I, I think that this conversation is mainly to do with, we're talking about like weight weight loss or weight gain here. But I think it gets even more nuanced and detailed when you're talking about like disease states. So if you have diabetes, type 1 or type 2, again, some people do better on low carb. Right. Yeah. And, and, and I'm think, okay with that. And think about if someone has had type 2 for a long time right. and their pancreas, the they can't get the, exactly. the function back into the pancreas. Right. Once so those beta cells are gone. Right. So yeah. you could make a very strong argument for someone who's had type 2 for 10 plus years and they can't do Roy Taylor's protocol and lose weight and get the enough insulin production, then a low-carb diet might be the best option for them. It's sensible. Like, think about it this way. If you can reverse your insulin resistance and your pancreas still works, then sure, you can keep carbs in your, in your diet. No problem. 
But if your pancreas has stopped working, even if you get rid of the insulin resistance, the engine isn't there to produce the insulin. So why would you put in a stimulus into your body, being carbohydrates, that requires insulin if you can't make the insulin? So I think it is sensible. I think, again, those blanket recommendations just don't work. Like you need to look at the individual. You really got to see context matters. That's where I was trying to get to when I was (laughs) not being very articulate. No, no, no. I think think over time I've realized that the blanket recommendations are not effective at the individual level. Right. And you have to you have to listen to all this information, read the guidelines, and then personalize things. And it's not that one person's going to do best for longevity on a carnivore diet and the next person on a vegan diet. Right. I don't think our physiology is that different. Mm-hmm. But there will be some subtle changes that will leave one person feeling better than yes. the next. Yes. And also maybe certain variations of that kind of theme I described will be best in terms of the, your biomarkers. Yeah. So when you actually go out and test things. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. But I think the... <clears throat> sorry. <clears throat> That's the uh, leftovers of the rowing machine in my lungs <laughs> from this morning's workout. Um, I do think that the, the f- feeling good short-term is not a good proxy for long-term no. health. So I know that there's carnivores who say they feel amazing short-term. And I know there's other people eating other diets who feel so good and... I just don't think that that's good enough for a long-term um, sustainable diet or way yeah. of living if it's going to make you more unhealthy down yeah. the line. You know. Yeah. You, when I say feeling good, again, I'm talking about within the context of what is established as a healthy dietary pattern yeah. for longevity. Yeah. Right. So I'm not saying just go out and follow any random diet and if you feel good then that's the right diet mm. for you yeah. what I'm saying is there's an established theme low saturated fat good amount of polyunsaturated fats high fiber features more plant protein than the average right. diet it's low in ultra processed foods within that theme make some changes yeah, I agree what leaves you feeling best in terms of energy levels and cognition yeah. memory all these sorts of things yeah. and <clears throat> test your, your biomarkers mm. and go from there yeah and and be okay with self-experimenting like you can be on a plant-based diet and do a little stint of a low-carb version see how you feel maybe the cognition improvements are incredible and you love it fine it's it's nice to have options and i think that if you get it like too dogmatic you you run out of options here and w- the more options the better not just for us as individuals but for everybody because there's so many differences between people and i've i've definitely changed i mean i've made this is a pendulum it swings like i was low carb keto and then i was a high carb very low fat and then i'm like i'm just in the middle and sometimes i have low carb days sometimes high like I just going back to what you said i think the best framing of it is what is the foundation and it's pretty clear what you just mentioned all of those things plant predominant diet high fiber more plant protein, blah, blah, blah. Within that, yeah, tweak it how you like. Have fun with it. You only get to live one life, guys. Seed oils. <laughs> <laughs> That's the other thing. What that a transition. <laughs> I just uh, realized you said C- oh, CGMs we didn't speak about oh, okay. we didn't and Collingwood. Yeah. And then the third thing that we usually talk about <laughs> is seed oils. Is there anything you want to say about them? <laughs> Actually. I have an episode <laughs> with uh, Professor Philip Calder. Okay. And that will be out, actually, that's going to be out the week before this episode. So, yeah. by the time people are listening to us now, if they're still listening, because we kind of say goodbye to everyone. 
still here, guys. <laughs> if if you're still with us, someone's still listening. Respect. Yeah. If, and let us know if you made it to the end. Is this yeah. on YouTube? Yeah, this it will be on Go YouTube. Go to YouTube and I just want, let us know in the comments. Everyone that's still listening right now, yeah. at one hour thirty something in, yeah. twenty minutes after we say goodbye to everyone, yeah. Uh, Go to YouTube, leave us a comment. And just say, still here. <laughs> still here. That's what we want in the comment. Um, <laughs> right, just going back to seed oils, that has to be the most trending video, or this this topic, the most trending videos right now are about destroying seed oils online. Like I'm seeing people telling you that oat milk is literally killing you, that it's higher GI than Coca-Cola and all this stuff. So I'm keen to hear what, what this expert says. And I'd like to hear your opinion, but I think are we saving that for the next... The next episode. Let's save it. Save it. Okay. It's it's probably it's a big one. Twenty or thirty minutes to unpack. Okay. But yeah, make sure you tune into so our next episode, and we'll we'll you, debrief on. You just drank a. If I know you, it's always a double macchiato with some mm-hmm. kind of plant milk. Almond milk. So you did almond. But I, I don't ask them to show me the ingredient list or yeah. is there seed oils sure. in there. So, but what I was going to say is like you're drinking a macchiato, which mm. literally has like a little bit of fluff on top. Like it's not like you're drinking vast amounts of hey, seed don't, oil. Don't pick on the macchiato. <laughs> no, I love a macchiato. <laughs> what I'm saying is, let's just let's just. He might be small, but he packs man, a big punch. Oh, it's a beautiful coffee. Let's steal man the argument. Mm. Let's say seed oils are toxic. Mm. Do you think that the dose in a macchiato, that little bit of froth on top, is enough to cause problems? Yes, if- I'm not walking out here. <laughs> <laughs> my legs you are not it? going to work. Oh, gosh. Okay. All right, mate. Look. I'm intoxicated. I, you, you look intoxicated. <laughs> you actually look it. Okay. I love it. He's being facetious. He's a bit of a tongue in cheek. But, no, yeah. but let me just say one thing. The episode with Philip Calder, it was a rem- reminder that context matters a lot. And I do think that there may be a context I'm not going to give this away. Don't give it away. There might be a context that may apply to many of the people listening right now, actually, where you might want to reduce your exposure to certain seed oils rich in omega-6. Tucker like Goodrich is going to be oh, he's, fist he's, pumping right yeah, now exactly. and, and he's, he's, Dr. Might. Matthew Nagra is going to be thinking, where are you going with yeah, this? Yeah. I think there is a context that's worth flagging that certain people may want to consider reducing omega-6 rich seed oils and instead cooking with olive oil or avocado oil or even canola oil, which is low in omega-6 but rich in monounsaturated fats. And it goes without saying, reducing ultra-processed foods that contain a lot of these omega-6 rich oils. I don't think it's the omega-6s in those ultra-processed foods that are inherently the problem. I think it's the entire package. But... In this one particular context, there is a good argument for reducing omega-6 intake. I'll leave you with that. You've got me hooked. You just cut a great promo. <coughs> a lot of people want to know now, so mm-hmm. you're going to have to just tune into the next episode, I guess. Mm. That's how we it's do it. It's very interesting. I like that, mate. All leave, right. leave people hanging. So when I tomorrow, can I have, is it okay if I have some oat milk in my coffee? Yeah, so, if you want to die. <laughs> I <laughs> oh, love it. We're Speaking of leaving people hanging, yeah. One last thing. Okay. I've been practicing my dead hangs. Oh, have you? Yeah. I mean, ahead of the retreat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got to. I don't want to get shown up. No, no, no. You don't. You uh, don't. So, how long should I be hanging for? Have you gotten more than a minute? I'm practicing single arm hangs and also doubles. 
Okay, the fact that you can even single arm hang. I can single arm hang for about 10 seconds. Is great. Most pe- A lot of people cannot. And you're not a small person. That know? took took a little bit Mate, you're, of practice. You've got to be 90 kilos, right? 90 kilos. Mate, that, that's great. Just to hang single arm, that's very good. Most people who can hang long on single send arm you a video. are very light. So single arm, you do left and your right. Similar time per arm. My left is a little shorter. Yep, understandably. And what's your double arm hang? Have you tested that? I haven't looked at the max, but I, I hang for about a minute and it feels pretty comfortable. Okay. Yeah, tr- try your double arm when you're fresh next time. Um, we did, like for Ninja Warrior, we had to do, I think it was four minutes. Maybe 1% of people could do four minutes. And these are like athletes who are. So this is grip endurance. Grip endurance. As opposed to grip strength. Correct. Which... It depends on your body weight. If you're a very heavy person, the amount of strength that you're going to have to utilize to hang up, obviously 100 kilos of a bar is going to be more than someone who's got a frame of 50. Right, because often, like we just tested as well, your grip strength with the dynamometer. Did I pass? You passed. You're in the 97th percentile, which is extremely good for grip strength. And we didn't do the test properly. You meant to do three each hand with a couple minutes rest and test your left hand. But like you're obviously strong, and I think that um, grip endurance is something that people don't practice enough. I think hanging in general is fantastic. Mate, we're just about to start another podcast. Here we go. Well, that's what what I've been doing, Drew. Yeah. So. I'll do a, a set of whatever I'm whatever I'm working out. Right. Legs, push, pull. And just hang. And then in the middle, I just hang. Brilliant. All for it. For shoulder health, for just general just grip, forearm. The forearms are looking juicy as well. Look at those. No wonder you used. <laughs> These are from hanging, guys. Yeah, that's it. No, that's good, man. I, I, I do a lot of hanging. Into, I mean, you, you, now you're ready for rope. You just, you just proved to me that you're ready for rope. Are you going to come? I did the rope once in LA, actually. I saw. I saw. Yeah. It's different. Come to this rope. I got up there relatively easy. No, you, you looked good. You I didn't use legs up. at all. No, you did a legless. You flew <laughs> up there. I saw it. It was great. That rope's different. It's thinner. Mm. The, our rope's Okay, special. I'll come down. Will you? Is it tomorrow? Oh, my God. Guys, are you hearing this? Is it tomorrow? Uh, what day is it today? Saturday. There is a Sunday one, but we're not going to do that. We're going to do it next week. Can you do it on Monday? The day of our podcast? Yeah. Yeah. What time's our podcast? Afternoon? I think it was like... Yeah, 3 p.m. Perfect. We're going to do rope midday. Okay. So we will report back. You know, no, we're going to film it. I'm filming We'll film this. it? Yeah, I'm going to make and a we'll post. we'll report on, back. And we're going to I'm also going to, to record a double arm dead hang. For max Double time. hand dead hang. If you can do four minutes, I will be so impressed. Four minutes. Because what happens is, you're a minute in, you're like, this is easy. I'm good. I'm going to do 10 minutes. And then you just hit a wall. It happens so quick. How much of this is mental? Uh, not that much your grip will physically give out. Like when I did Ninja, I was on, I remember, I I will never forget this moment, the most vivid memory maybe of my life. (laughs) I was in the semifinals. I'm on the last obstacle. I have to get past this one and I'm on the warped wall, hit the buzzer and it's all over. I'm into the finals. I get onto this fourth, the last obstacle, whatever it was. I'm hanging from like a ring, like a metal ring, okay? And it's movable. And you hook it onto something and then you do this lache, yes. right? Which yeah. means you fly through the air, but you keep holding the ring and you land on another hook, okay? I made the hook, bang, got it. Made the next, got it. Now all I have to do is swing from the ring to the floor and then climb the wall and we're good. I'm into the finals. But you lost all strength. It's not that I lost strength. The ring started to twist, okay? So I was facing now to the right and then I was facing to the left and I need to face forward. And, I, and it was like, I couldn't stop it from swinging. 
So in my mind, I'm like, just calm down, wait for it to stop. You'll face the right way and then you'll go. And I'm waiting and I'm waiting and I'm waiting and I'm like, this is, I'm about to do it. Here we go. It's slowing down. Bang. And then all of a sudden, I'm in the water. And I didn't know how it happened. I never felt my grip going. It just, bang, gone. The muscles just hit so much fatigue that I just was in the water. And I couldn't believe it. I was like, I know that I could have done it. I was right there. And my grip endurance let me down. Now, I'm not saying that people need to <laughs> practice their grip endurance so that they can be a ninja warrior. But like, it, it just shows you like three, four minutes is mm. epic. If come, you can do come down with me and I'll, I'll walk you through a few single arm reps. Te- teach me how to do this. <laughs> Okay, we can work on it. You're gonna be eating your words on the road, my friend. How late? Uh, good All session, right. my friend. Awesome, man. It's good to do it. Appreciate you. You too, brother. Thanks. There you have it, friends. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did and want to stay up to date with future episodes, be sure to hit that subscribe button on YouTube and follow on Apple or Spotify. Finally, thank you for showing up and the effort that you're making to take control of your health. I look forward to hanging out with you again in the next episode.